Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good to see you, friends. Hope that you had a good week. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And we're going to be taking a look at verses 5 through 23 this morning. And so I invite you to, to turn there. I was thinking about it over this last week. Uh, over the years, you know, pastors that have had an influence on my life, I have no doubt that you could be thinking the same thing. You could go back to maybe a time in your teens or your 20s or 30s or whatever. As we get a little bit older, you know. I was thinking back to uh, a pastor that uh, sat down with me at one point, and this is when I wasn't really wanting to be a pastor. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I remember talking with my mom in, in church, and I said, you know, I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I sure know what I don't want to be when I grow up. And she's like, what's that? And I pointed at the pastor. I was like, I wouldn't want to be him. <laughs> well, here we are, right? But there was an older gentleman. He, uh, you know, he had long been a pastor in Beaumont, some other places he had pastored in my hometown. And I remember there I was in high school, and, and I remember him and his wife saying, hey, we would love to have you out to the house. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, okay, that's great. And at this point, he was, he was retired, but actively a part of the church. I was like, yeah, it's great. And so I go out, and I'm sitting at the home, and we had a meal together, right? And they said, there's some stuff that we just, we just wanted to give you. And so they, they started, he started giving some of his commentaries uh, on the Old and the New Testament and some things like that. And I'm like, well, you, don't have to, you don't have to do any, anything like this. And he goes, no, no, that's okay. You're going to need it when you go into ministry. And I was like, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I'm not going to do it, right? And he was even making, a, a, even made a comment about the girl that I was dating. He's like, you need to rethink this. I mean, she's just not really going to work, you know, for your life and ministry. And I was like, what are we doing here? Have you ever had a moment like that? Uh, because I did right then. Uh, but I also, as in hindsight, I look back and I think, my gosh, I, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that moment, you know, that someone would speak into my life uh, and that someone would come alongside and that they would give encouragement for the giftings that they, that they see that the Lord had given me. And I, I hope that it would be the same for you, that someone had come alongside you, right? And, say, and give you a lot of encouragement for the giftings that they see that the Lord has given you. There is a danger here, though. Uh, because when it comes to people in leadership, whether it's leadership in a company, or it could be leadership in a church, those kinds of affections for a person can take on a role or a place that it was never meant to be. Uh, such that you so, you so connect yourself with that person that you would be willing to speak ill of another person in leadership, whether it's church or not church, that you would speak because you have so aligned yourself with this camp that you would tear somebody else down because you've aligned yourself with one particular person. This seems to be something that was happening at the church in Corinth in the passage that we're talking about today. And Paul has something that he wants to say about it. So let's just take a look. Here's what he says, starting in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He's talking about himself. What is Paul? Notice what he didn't say. Who is Apollos? He didn't say, who is Paul? He said, what? What is Apollos? What is Paul? And he gives an answer. There are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role that the Lord has given. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So Paul is basically saying this, I started the church because he did, he started the church in Corinth, but there was the time after about a year and a half that he hands it off. And so Apollos comes behind him, and Apollos is this guy that's really smart. He's well-spoken. If you go into the book of Acts, some have wondered if Paul was a well-spoken guy. I mean, literally, literally you have people falling asleep and falling out of windows when Paul is preaching, right? And you go, not the most dynamic speaker. Some of the descriptions that have been given of Paul is he might be a little kind of fat, a little short, unibrow. I'm not making that up. Some of the extra biblical literature. This guy walks in, and you go... All right, that's Paul, right? But then Apollos walks in, and this guy apparently could like really speak, capture the imagination and the attention. And so some people are like, well, I'm, I'm of Paul. I mean, I'm with the guy that started this thing. And others are like, I don't know, this Apollos guy, pretty amazing. I think I'm kind of in his camp. You get the flow of what I'm talking about here? It's a dangerous place to be. I mean, Apollos is smart and well-spoken. He's there teaching the people. Paul started something, Apollos came after and watered it. Paul put the seed in the ground, Apollos comes behind and he puts some water on the seed. But who gives the growth? It isn't Paul, it isn't Apollos. He says, God gives the growth. Now there's something that we're supposed to take from this right off the bat, and here's one. Whether it's me as a pastor of a church, or whether it's you as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're all supposed to be putting seeds in the ground and we're supposed to be, we all have our place. Seeds in the ground, watering the seeds. And then we hand it over to God and pray that God would give the increase, right? So our job is to be faithful in all of this. God gives the growth. Now he uses this example of a farmer. In first century, farmers were dependent on the rain, right? I mean, once you put the seeds in the ground, you don't have control over the clouds. By the way, been a little dry here lately, fair? You look at your yard, you go, we could use, I don't know, we could probably use a little bit of rain or something like that. Think about how dependent they would be on something like that. We put the seeds in the ground, and at that, it's like, Lord, please bring the rain. Those were the things that you have no control over. You also have absolutely no control over how somebody is going to respond to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You have none, but you throw the seeds. You throw the seeds, and you pray that God gives the increase. See, to them, the rain was from God. And so he starts this way, but he goes on in verse 7, he says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters, they're one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. He just shifted. He was talking about farming a second ago, and now he's talking about building. You have to remember this, there's infighting in that church. People were literally fighting with each other. Where was the problem? It wasn't in the leaders. It wasn't in Paul. It wasn't in Apollos. And you know that because of what he just said. He said, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Paul planted. Apollos waters. He goes, we're on the same page here. Apollos and I aren't fighting with each other. We're not bickering. I'm not here to try to take something away from this guy. You're the problem. The church here was the problem. He says, Paul's not, we're co-workers in this. And you need to stop because what you're doing is killing the work that we're trying to do. That's what they were fighting about. We're laboring together. Let me give you an, an, let me give you an example here. I was thinking about this week. Um, we can be caught up in aligning ourselves with particular people if we're not really careful I was thinking about the Houston Astros, right? 
had like, what, 10 or 11 game winning streak going there for a while. That was, that was fun to watch, right? If you go to a major league baseball game, uh, have you ever gone before and seen people trying to get autographs from people? I remember going to Texas Rangers games. I lived more up in that area when I was growing up. And this was the old Rangers stadium. And I was a pitcher. And you could go down to the bullpen and literally like stand there. And I'd stand and Nolan Ryan is like right there, right? And watch that guy warm up. It was awesome, right? Now, when I went to a Rangers game or if we go to an Astros game and somebody is going for an autograph, who would they go for? Probably Altuve. How many of you would go for Altuve? Would you want his autograph? How many of you would go to groundskeeper Willie? <laughs> All right, you get my point. You get my point. I mean, groundskeeper Willie is what's making Minute Maid Park look great. Great. But nobody walks in and goes, where's the groundskeeper at today? I want a signature. Because an amazing talent that guy has, or guys, or whatever. You get the idea? Nobody goes in for that. And Paul says, I'm going to give you a warning here. It's God's field. It's not mine. It's not Apollos' field. It's God's field. We still use this analogy. We do. Because we talk about planting churches, don't we? We plant churches. Seeds that would then grow into something. We plant churches. Just one example, you think of Banner Hill Church right outside of Boston. We've partnered with them for several years now. Brian Shippey, the pastor up there, they've planted at Framingham State University. They're doing worship, They're doing worship today on the campus of a university. That's awesome, isn't it? It's great. And, and it's not just that they're at Framingham State University, they've multiplied. The church plant that we put in the ground up there is now got another church, Banner Hill Church, at a different university. They're going to be worshiping today as well. That's the whole thing. We pour in, we put the water, and we say, God, do something amazing after that. Paul's just saying, be careful. Be careful with your favorites. And then he adds this at the end of verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, one, that's supposed to wake us up a little bit uh, because it's an amazing thing for us, to, for, for us to have received the grace of God in Jesus. That's an amazing thing. And then we have the next question. What do we do with what we have received in the grace of God in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, you're a laborer. You're supposed to be of good use with the grace that's been in, entrusted to you. You're noticing, by the way, to this church, he's like, you're noticing some differences between Paul and Apollos. The people were, anyway. You see differences in the way that they work. You think that you can put an appropriate value on these differences. Like you're judging the work that they're doing. It's what the church was doing. And then you speak about these differences, and then you brag about it because you just hooked yourself up with Apollos. So his success is, yeah, I'm an Apollos kind of guy. It's what they were doing. My predecessor is Greg Wallace. Greg was here for 25 years, served this church and this community incredibly well, did an awesome job at this church. Neither Greg nor I have any interest in competing with each other and never have, not for one second. Instead, we come alongside like Paul and Apollos, thankful for all of the work that he did. My job was to come alongside after like Apollos, after Paul, and do some good things with this church. But I'm not in competition with the guy. We're on the same team. And I would hope, I would think, that he would feel the same way. As a matter of fact, I know he feels the same way. I know it. 
Paul says this in verse 10. He says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and then another builds on it. That's Greg. That's me. And then there will be somebody after me. I don't know when that is, but there'll be somebody after me. See, after a while, Moses got to hand it off to Joshua, right? The point is, is that you want things further down the road to hand it off and say, go, go. That's a beautiful picture of the work of the church. He says here, a skilled master builder, basically like a project manager. That's what it is, all right? I mean, the church is God's, it's not Paul's. So he's there basically to manage the project of the work of the church. But here's the catch. At this point, Paul is gone. Apollos is gone. There are new leaders in the church. And so Paul had to give that warning. And he says, be careful. Each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Be careful. For no one can lay a foundation other than what has been laid down. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it was revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. There's a warning here, right? How you work matters. You can do work in the flesh. You can do work in the spirit. Work done in the spirit. Gold and silver, it's going to be refined by a fire. Wood, hay, and stubble, eh, not so much. Not so much. He says, if anyone's work that he has built survives, he receives a reward. Your motives matter. Everything about what you do matters. If anyone's work is burned up, he said, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Notice he gives two types of materials. And they would get this. I mean, you know, the temples that were built by Solomon. Later, there was a temple that was built by Herod. When this was written, Herod's temple still standing. That didn't go down until about 8070, right? Still there. They were made of fine materials, gold, silver, costly stones. In fact, in the temple, gold and silver plated many of the surfaces. The costly stones that he mentions here, they're not jewelry. They are quarry-cut stones such as limestone and marble that were reserved for the finest buildings such as the temple. Mark talks about this in Mark chapter 3. Wood, by the way, was expensive. No different today, right? They'd be like, can I get some steel? Oh, you can get some steel, but it's going to hurt. Right? It's the same. Wood was incredibly expensive because it was so rare back then. It was used for the rafters. However, you know what the thing about wood is? It burns. I know you know that. It burns, while metals and the stones would not. That's why he borrows the analogy that he does. See, I always thought, in some sense, that hay and straw were kind of foolish building materials when you think about it. And many houses in Corinth, just so you know, they would be built from that. It would be like a mud packed in with a straw, and then you have some wood. But here was the catch. It wasn't uncommon in first century Greece for entire villages to burn down four or five times in a century. Not uncommon. And I don't mean a house. I mean the whole thing goes down. And here's why. Have you ever seen some of the building projects that like when it's, you're getting into a population-dense area, you know how far they put the houses apart? Not very. Not very far. As a matter of fact, I, I, I've thought there are some places even in Kingwood that if I was out of mustard, I could actually roll up the window and look and go, can you hand me some of that over in your fridge? That is how close the houses are. No different here. Now imagine what happens when one of these houses that's made out of the cheaper stuff catches a fire. Where did you cook? You cooked inside. Where did you build the fire? You built the fire on the inside. Now imagine what happens when that house goes up in a flame. This house is right next to it. Next thing you know, there's nothing left to the village. And this is why Paul was giving the example. How you do what you do and why you do what you do 
matters. It matters. And the work will be judged. It will be. So when a house caught fire, usually from the inside, spreading to the neighboring houses very close, next thing you know, an entire city is toast. Paul says, think about it. Not with what you build, but what you're building with your soul and in the church. Think about it. He says, because there is a day. He's talking about the day of the Lord, a day when all of these things will be brought before and God will judge. That's why he uses the analogy. By the way, when he says you, you will be judged, it's plural. He's not talking about you individually. He's talking about the church, the work of the church. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you, plural. The Spirit of God lives in you. The church is the temple. The temple, by the way, like I said, it's already standing over there. They have an idea. The temple was the place where the Shekinah glory was, literally the radiance of God. And Paul says, no, no, that's you now. You are supposed to be the one that radiates the presence of God for the people. We're the place God shows up. We're the place that God dwells. You can build it on eternal, on eternal imperishable jewels, or you can build it on the junk. And that reminds me of something. Some years ago, I had a professor named Calvin Miller, awesome guy. When you go to seminary, uh, you have to take classes on preaching, just so you know. Uh, and he was one of those that taught me. Really loved Calvin Miller. He wrote a number of books, but there was one that he wrote for children. And a lot of you like read Shel Silverstein or whatever to your kids, right? Or Where the Sidewalk Ends. How many of y'all read like Where the Sidewalk Ends to your kids? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I did too. I also read this because these were poems for kids. And I wanted to share something with you because I think it's, it's pretty insightful, even though it's written for children. It's called, You Can't Build a Steeple That's Bigger Than God. I should have brought my reading jacket, but we're here. <clears throat> Are you ready? The proud preacher Dan built a church and then planned to build a tall steeple that all of the people could see. So, he cut down a pine 1,009 times 75 plus six inches high to build a great spire that was 40 times higher than the steepest of steeples that puncture the sky. Why do you want such a very high steeple, asked 705,000 people. Because, said Dan, I want everyone to know how stupendous I, the Reverend Dan, am. I'll show them a church they well can applaud and build a steeple that's bigger than God. Then the sky clouded up. All right, this is where it doesn't go well for the Reverend. Then the sky clouded up and a lightning bolt flashed and a loud voice boomed as the thunder crashed. This is God, Reverend Dan. Now, whatever you plan, try to remember, I'm pretty good sized. And if you should climb from May to December, you never could measure how tall are the skies. And even though all in the whole world applaud, you can't build a steeple that's bigger than God. God boomed and God thundered. See here, Reverend Dan, is a list of some things that I'm taller than. I'm taller than grass. I'm taller than flowers, shrubs, poles, and trees, chimneys, and towers. I'm taller than airplanes, even jets in their flight. I'm taller than rockets that launch satellites. It's too bad you've forgotten. It's quite a disgrace, for I'm taller than heaven and taller than space. So you see, Pastor Dan, you must tell the people that I will always be taller than steeples. But Dan didn't hear the voice out of space. He went out right then to a very wide place and started to build at a very fast pace. He found the great pine, 
1,009 times 75 plus six inches high, and he stood it on end in a very strong wind till it disappeared in the clouds of the sky. Oh, Reverend Dan, that is a high steeple, said 705,000 people. And as all those near began to applaud, Dan beamed, my steeple is higher than God. And just as he spoke from the high clouds and mist came a thousand-mile hand that formed in a fist. And it smashed the high steeple which fell all around, shattered and scattered all over the ground. Dan sat in the ruins of his tall splintered spire, which no one around him now could admire. He started to cry when the voice from the sky said, Dan, I'm so sorry it ended this way. But when life takes a turn that helps us to learn, we ought to admit it's been a good day. No man is big who thinks he is big. When we're uppity up, we're only a clod. We ought to remember we're made out of sod, and we can't build a steeple that's bigger than God. And he's right. We can't. But we are supposed to be about the work of God. And that's why he uses the example of of a building. We're building something here. You see this when, you know, when Jesus looks at, at Peter and he says, on this rock I will build my church. What he was saying to Peter was, I'm not building my church on you. Instead, it was what Peter had just confessed because he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He said, it is as you say, Peter, and on this rock, what you just admitted, the church will be built. For everyone that says what Peter just said, the church just got built some more. And the idea of rewards, because Paul's talking about it here, right? For service, it occurs a number of times in the New Testament. For example, Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. A reward from your Father in heaven, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. A righteous man's reward, Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 41. A reward for labor and church planting, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 and 14. Rewarded fully for a conscientious Christian life. Second John 8, the rewards, it says, are distributed at Christ's coming, rewarding your servants and the prophets. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. Scripture isn't hiding this stuff from us. It's everywhere. The question isn't, isn't what it says. It's, what are we doing? What are we doing? And so it gives one last thought. He says in verse 16, don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that's what you are. Here's another way of looking at it. If you're playing this game where you are so aligned with a person that you would destroy the work of God that he's doing through another person, God will destroy you. You will be judged for it. You will. Now, here's, here's, here's the reason that this matters is because the church in Scripture is called the Bride of Christ. Now, I'm just going to say this. Somebody says something bad about me, I'm probably going to let it go. Right? You say something bad about my wife, I'm not going to let that go. God's not either. They were sowing a disunity that was so destroying the church and Paul's like, don't fool yourself. You will see God for this. 
Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in his age, let him become a fool so that he can be wise. For the wisdom of God of the world is foolishness with God since it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasons of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders for everything is yours. He's like, why are you hooking up with these guys? These guys, these guys are servants. You have Christ and everything that he had, he's giving to you freely. Take that and go. By the way, if you're wise to the world, you're probably a fool to God is basically what Paul is saying. You might look wise to everybody else and God's up there going, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? So let me give you a word of encouragement, friends. Quit with the hero making. Stop it. Unless the hero is Jesus, then keep going. No more with the Paul, no more with Apollos, no more with, we're with Peter. They, belong, they don't belong to you. He says, you belong to Christ and everything that belongs to him now belongs to you. Let's go like that and see what the Lord can do, which is pretty amazing. The testimony of everything, just so you know, is all about his grace and goodness. It really is. It's all about his grace and his mercy. And we need both, don't we? You ever thought about the difference? Grace and mercy? These are two terms that are used in the Bible. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Picture this. Let me borrow an example. You're racing down the road. Not you. It's somebody you know, probably. You're racing down the road, handily breaking the speed limit, when suddenly you see the blue lights flashing behind you. There's something you deserve in this situation. You deserve a ticket and a fine. You broke the law. There's a penalty for that crime. Now, after a brief conversation, the officer lets you go with a warning. How many of you have done that? I'm kidding. Don't admit that. They let you go with a warning. That, by the way, is mercy. You deserve the speeding ticket, but you're not getting what you actually deserve. Now, let's imagine a different scenario. You have a project that's due at work, and try as you may, you have not been able to complete the task. Without it, you have no chance of achieving the bonus that you've been working towards. And at the last second, a colleague jumps in, does the work, saves the day, helping you with what needed to get done. That would be grace. I used to say it like this to the seminary students. When they would come up with a paper or an exam, and they're like, would you be willing to show me some mercy? Would you be willing, or usually they'd say, would you show me some grace? And it's like, listen to me. If you want me to show you grace, I take the exam for you. That's grace. And I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you got to take the test yourself. But you see the difference between the two? Because it's important. No matter how hard you worked, you didn't deserve the bonus, you fell short, but somebody else came along and provided exactly what you needed. Why do I bring up the distinction? Because all around us are people desperately need in both mercy and grace. And for those of you that are followers of Jesus, you've been the beneficiary of both. I just want other people to have what I already got. How about you? See, because we're sinners, we don't deserve to come into God's presence. We really don't. We don't deserve to be called as children. We don't deserve his blessings. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit. But he loves us. And through our faith in Jesus, we receive all these things. We receive grace. Or as Hebrews 4.16 says, with, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's the good news of Jesus, isn't it? And here's what Paul was saying to the church this day. And I want everybody to know it. So let's get out of the way and let the Lord do his work. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.